0: The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning studying the word of God, and we are studying in the life of David, the life of David. And that may seem odd, given the lesson that you have before you, because in our last lesson, David actually died. Uh, So David's not alive anymore as far as the narrative, the progression we're going through. But Solomon's the beginning of Solomon's reign is significant in terms of the legacy, if you will, of David's life. And so what we're going to do in this study is we're going to continue on into the beginning of his reign. Look at some very important things about the beginning of his reign as king over Israel. And we're actually going to take one class and we're going to look at the legacy of David. And if you have been going along in the Bible reading that we're doing, the two year Bible reading plan that we're doing, one of the things that you will notice is that when the kings are being discussed, the various kings are being discussed, it will say something like, well, uh, this was a he was not a good a good king. He did not follow in the ways of his father, David obeying the commandments of the Lord, and so on and so forth. Or it would say he was a good king because he he followed the way of his father David. In other words, David became a de facto standard, if you will, for what it meant to be a good king over Israel. And we'll look at some of those things, some of his legacy that lived on uh, after the Lord took him home. Before we do any kind of study in this class today, we need to take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are indeed Uh, ready for the study of God's word. This silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also the opportunity to humble ourselves before the truth of God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to gather here at the church. I thank you for the, the folks that made it here to the church today, my brothers and sisters in Christ that I have the opportunity to have some fellowship with. We thank you for those who are at home listening online, being blessed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to their souls through the technology that we have today. Father, we ask that you would help all of us, whoever is listening to this message, whether they're in the church or listening on their uh, handheld device, listening in their cars, whatever it may be. Father, we ask that you would help all of us to set aside the distractions of life, to focus our attention in on what it is that you're teaching us this morning, that as we hear your word, as it nourishes our souls, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things. In his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. I have asked for you folks to continue to lift me in prayer regarding uh, what comes next after the life of David. Because we are indeed on the home stretch. Uh, after we look at some of uh, Solomon's life and the beginning of his reign. And we do a recap, if you will, and look at David's legacy. Uh, we are going to move on to another study. And uh, I will tell you that a suggestion has been made, and I think I'm going to... I'm going to follow through with that, that in the interim, what we're going to do is after life of David is finished. And before we begin our next study in earnest, what I'm going to do is an interim work where I go through and I teach on the end times on eschatology. It's not going to be an in-depth study. We're not going to go into it to the level that we did, for example, in our David, I mean, excuse get me, Daniel Revelation study that we did. If that's uh, it's online, you can go pick those lessons up, uh, the eschatology lessons that are there from Daniel and Revelation. We're not going to go into that depth of detail. However, we are going to do an overview. We're going to do a, a big picture overview of the end times, what we are looking for next in the church, what comes after that, what all is involved in the various events that. Uh, that uh, lead up to the second coming because we know we, we are looking as a church. We are looking for Christ to come and get the church. That is often known as the rapture event. Uh, we're also uh, we also need to understand the second coming when he comes uh, to establish his kingdom on earth. All of those things are important. We need to take a look at what it means to talk about the fullness of fullness of the times and what that's all about, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're going to do an overview and I'm going to put the material together so that we can we can look at the timeline, the basics of the timeline, if you will, of of the the eschatology given in our uh, our scriptures so that we can have a clear picture in our minds of what is going to unfold in God's Alpha to Omega plan. One of the questions that I have been given uh, about this sort of thing is that why is it recorded in scripture Why is it in the Old Testament as well as in Revelation? Why was the Apostle John given revelation regarding the tribulation if those of us in the church are not even going to be here for that? Well, the answer to that is, by the way, we don't know how long after the rapture event happens that the tribulation begins. And this is what they're going to have. Right. This Bible right here is what they're going to have to help them understand what is unfolding before their eyes. And so that revelation has already been given and it's going to be there for them. It's also important. Remember, all scripture is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So it's important for us, even though we're not going to be here for the tribulation, it's important for us to understand What's going to happen in the tribulation, because if nothing else, that should motivate each and every one of you to be an evangelist, to be out there giving the gospel, because you should not want anyone to have to be here for the the things that unfold in the tribulation. But that's what's going to happen is we're going to do an interim study on eschatology, just an overview uh, while I'm working on preparing the next study, whatever that may be. I'm still praying about it and uh, asking for wisdom in that regard. All right. Life of David. We are looking at Solomon's reign. Solomon's reign begins here in First Kings, chapter three. Solomon formed an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's the very beginning of the chapter here. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David. That's Jerusalem until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord. And the wall around Jerusalem. Now that's talking about future events. Uh, the idea of building the house, his house, the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, the house of the Lord, of course, is the temple. Right? He's going to build the temple. Up until this time, up until Solomon's time, uh, they were operating out of the tabernacle, the tent, if you will. The, the they would move it from place to place. But under Solomon, remember, David was told no, that he was not going to build the temple. But Solomon, his son, would build it. So Solomon is going to build the temple. So we see an alliance being made here and it was sealed by the marriage to the daughter. Uh, Solomon, I mean, anybody who knows anything about the life of Solomon uh, knows that he was not particularly careful about marrying non-Israelites. In fact, he was not particularly careful about marriage period right so he uh, he had some issues we 're going to see that as we look at his life, but uh, they were remember, remember they were instructed not to do this, and yet he did it anyway uh, and this was obviously a political marriage this this was a, a marriage that was done as part of the alliance. it was done to seal it, and so it was clearly political in nature and uh, what we 'll see is that we further on in the in the Solomon's life, when he built his own palace, he constructed a special home for her in Jerusalem. 1 Kings seven, 8. Uh, His house where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. So he made a, a special house for her. And that's uh, that's yet future as in first Kings seven there. Uh, And but one thing interesting about this, even though, remember, there was instruction given to them about alliances, there were certain things they were not supposed to be doing in terms of forming alliances. I will say that historically, if you look at the way things unfolded, this particular alliance uh, did result in peace with Egypt. And actually, during Solomon's reign, Egypt was relatively weak uh, in comparison. And so there was there was peace between Israel and Egypt during this time. Uh, you know, you, you can we can have a discussion about whether or not he should have entered into this. Uh, certainly that the idea of marrying Pharaoh's daughter was probably a bad idea. <laughs> uh, that was not something he should have done. But we do see historically that the, the alliance did result in peace with Egypt. Now, interestingly, Solomon loved the Lord. We see that in the in the next few verses here. But he offered sacrifices on the high places. Now, again, if you've been reading along in the Bible reading that we've been doing, you know a lot about the high places. It's talked a lot about in the scriptures. Uh, The people were still sacrificing on the high places because now that interestingly, the word because here could be translated a lot of different ways. Uh, But the idea is that they use this as an excuse because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. They didn't have to sacrifice on the high places. Where could they go offer sacrifices at the tabernacle? The temple hadn't been built yet. Yeah, they could go to the tabernacle and they could offer sacrifices. This was an excuse. All right. They were sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father, David. Again, you're going to see that throughout the scriptures talking about him. It literally it literally was Solomon's father. But that, that term is going to get used for king all kings coming afterwards as well. Uh, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. We'll talk about that in a minute. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now, verse 5, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon... In a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. And you could also, by the way, remember the Hebrew language is very succinct. Uh, It doesn't have to have very many words, and it can turn into a lot of words in the English. The idea is, ask whatever you wish me to give you. That's what God was, was, was saying to Solomon. Ask me for whatever you want. Ask me for whatever you want. And it came to him in a dream. Well, let's look at some of the elements of this. First of all, the high places were hilltops or other elevated locations. And interestingly, doing these things on the high places, that was a practice that started all the way back during the time of the judges. And it was adopted from a Canaanite custom. They were picking up practices from the Canaanites. That was a no-no. They weren't supposed to be they were supposed to be following after God's law, following after what God had recommended and stipulated for them. And yet they're picking up and adopting practices of the one that were the people that were living in the land before they came in and took it. The Canaanites. So they were they picked up this practice and it goes all the way back to the time of the judges. The pagan Canaanites. This is what's goofy about doing this on the high places. The pagan Canaanites felt that being higher up helped their prayers and offerings reach their gods. In other words, the higher up I can get, the closer I am to God, right? Or in their case, gods, right? And so they were, they felt like the higher I could get, then if I offer it up, it's got a better chance of actually reaching them. I mean, think about how little that has to do with understanding who God really is. I mean, God is right here, folks. We don't have to go up high somewhere in order to be able to Connect with God. Yes, sir. It actually, I'm glad you brought that up. That actually connects all the way back to the Tower of Babel incident, right? The Tower of Babel incident. And so it's false teaching and it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. That's exactly right. So it could. Well, that's right. So you still have the, the ongoing effects of Nimrod. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But this is so ridiculous for anybody who's a, who's a believer to even think such things. Yes. The Canaanites, uh, their kids to well, there were different sacrifices that took place. We're not talking about that here, but there were there were there were some child sacrifices that were done. Uh, those were even done by the people of Israel at some points later on. Right. If you read. If you go through and you read all of all of first and second Kings and all of uh, first and second Chronicles, you will find out about the Israelites uh, practicing in and child sacrifice as well. But but the primary thing about the high places is the idea is you're closer to God supposedly and therefore he's going to hear you or accept it. Oh, there's no question. So there's no question, strategically speaking, when we go back to the previous verse, the idea of an alliance with Egypt, strategically speaking, it was a good idea to, to have some sort of a good relationship with Egypt. But remember, there were places in Scripture where God said not to be making uh, alliances or agreements with the other nations because their security was in him, not in some sort of a uh, treaty that they might engage in. And whether the Scriptures actually do not say whether do, whether or not when Solomon did this, he was in he was in disobedience to God or not. We don't have the answer in Scripture. But what we know is there are certain cases where they were told not to make treaties, right? They were not. But you're right. There's, they border up. They border up with Israel, so it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Uh, a great, when it says there's a great high place, it means it's either one of two things, and we don't know which. We don't know which. It was either a very large high place or it was very popular. We don't know which. But that word great can mean either one. It could mean that it was very popular among the people to be used, or it could mean it was quite a large one. Uh, a great high place was at Gibeon. That's about five miles north of Jerusalem. Solomon made generous sacrifices to the Lord there, even though they should have been offered at the tabernacle. And that's what we have here in Leviticus 17, verses 3 and 4. Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp who, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting—that's the tabernacle, right? Has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle, tabernacle of the Lord. Blood get, guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. And that doesn't mean killed. It means he's going to basically be ostracized and separated out, right? Because he's done something he should not have done. So they were supposed to be—they were supposed to be bringing their sacrifices to the tabernacle. And Solomon should have known that, but he was going up to the high places now what's interesting about this is we're going to see in the next uh, section is that or in, in the, actually I'm bringing it up even in this section that it appears that God was had regard for his offerings uh, we we talked about while in Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and as I said in this last point it appears that God had regard for Solomon's offerings Because he did speak to Solomon in the dream and told him to ask for whatever he wanted. Now, I just I don't believe God would have come to him in that dream and said that to him if he didn't have regard for his offerings. So even though he was doing them on the high places instead of taking his sacrifices to the tabernacle, which he really should have done. What this tells me is that Solomon's heart was in the right place. He was actually legitimately offering the sacrifices to the Lord. He was making a mistake by doing it in the high places, but his heart was there. He was truly worshiping the Lord and offering, making offerings to the Lord. And it was and the Lord had regard for that. Yes. Yeah, we'll see that that's before that, before the wisdom is given to him and so on. But see, but see, Solomon, Solomon should have known he was taught by his father, David. David knew what the right thing was to do, even though we know in the life of David, David made a few mistakes or three or four. (laughs) Yeah. So now Solomon took this opportunity when he's given this opportunity, he asked God for a discerning heart. And this this is an amazing passage. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to cover some of these aspects of the beginning of Solomon's reign, because this is, I, I want you to think about this for a second. Let's say you're in this position where God came to you and said, ask me for whatever you want. Ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon could have asked for anything. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God. You have made your servant king in place of my father, David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, going out and coming in, that's talking about literally going out and coming in as far as military service. He's talking about about leading the army there. Then in verse 8, your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart. That's actually a discerning heart, but an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge This great people of yours. So first of all, those in verses six through eight, he was showing humility. First of all, he acknowledged, he recognized the loving kindness that God had shown to his father, David. And he said, David walked in righteousness and the truth. He realized that the loving kindness that God had shown to his father, David, was the whole reason he was on the throne. Did you pick that up? He said, that's, that's why I'm even on this throne is because of the loving kindness that you, show, you showed to my father David. He knew that he was young and inexperienced. How many, how many, how many people have, have, have been in this position that he's in and have taken the opposite road? Instead of recognizing that they're young and inexperienced, they've, I mean, by the way, when I was 16, I knew everything. I did. I knew everything. I didn't really, but I thought I did. <laughs> Ask me, I'll tell you, right? <laughs> that was me when I was 16. He was awed to be leading God's chosen people. That's very important to understand. He was absolutely in awe that he was going to be leading God's chosen people. And he had great reverence for that. And he he had great respect for what that meant. He then made his, res- his request from God He knew he needed an understanding heart. And again, as I said, that's actually a discerning heart in the Hebrew. He wanted the ability to properly judge the people of Israel by discerning between good and evil. In other words, he knew he was going to be in that position. He was going to have to make judicial decisions. He was going to have to render verdicts over uh, people in Israel. And he wanted to be able to be wise and make uh, decisions and recognize good and evil and he knew that was a position of great responsibility. He understood that that's why he makes that last statement. When you see that last um, statement in the scriptures, it says it says there for who is able to judge this great people of yours. That's him acknowledging what a what a, a tremendous position of responsibility that is. Who could do that? Who, what kind of person can actually do that? You know, and he realizes it's a big deal to be a judge over the people of Israel. God then answered Solomon's request above and beyond all that he asked for. So Solomon could have asked for anything. And what he asked for was an understanding heart. He wanted to be able to discern so he could judge the people of Israel. It says in verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And because of his humility is why. In verse 11, God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will be not any among the kings like you all your days. If, look what verse 14 says, if you walk in my ways, this is unconditional in verse 13. right, this is what he's giving him in 13. It's unconditional. Verse 14 is conditional. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Verse 15, then Solomon awoke. And behold, it was a dream and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So if we break it down, first of all, again, as I said, God was pleased with Solomon's humility. He could have asked for whatever and what he asked for was to be a wise leader over the people of Israel and God granted Solomon a wise and discerning heart and much, much more. We saw that. And by the way, this is a perfect demonstration ...of God providing far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3.20 doesn't stand by itself. We see this example in the Old Testament. It says, "...now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think." That's the whole thing. We need to understand as believers that uh, often we we don't ask anywhere near what we should. And in fact, if you look at some of the if you look at some of the Psalms, which, by the way, I've mentioned it before. Those are prayers to music is what most of those Psalms are is prayers to music. And when you look at the boldness of the prayers of some of those those individuals, David and others, the boldness of their prayers, they are just right out there asking God. Four things they're not even uh, not even timid about it at all and I think that most of us and I put myself in this category most of us are, are far too timid with our prayer life we, we don't ask but this tells us that God can do for us far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think and often does often does see if I want to point out the timidity that that most of us have all you have to do is look at how the room is arranged there's this massive hole here in the front where nobody wants to be up next to the pastor <laughs> and there's a large gathering in the back. Right. <laughs> Look at this. There's nobody here. I can play football in this space. Right. So <laughs> anyway, but seriously, though, we, we often do not we often do not go before the throne of grace and boldly make the request that we should But God then goes above and beyond far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Then he promised Solomon a long life for faithful service, right? Uh, Anybody know about the life of Solomon? He Kind of made some mistakes, didn't he? So uh, he didn't really follow through on that one. Solomon didn't. God was God was ready to do that. But Solomon didn't really follow through on that one. Then Solomon woke up from the dream and he responded to God's abundant uh, blessings That should be God's abundant blessings, blessings by worshiping the Lord properly at the tabernacle. You notice now he's not going to the high place. He didn't he didn't stay there at Gibeon and offer up sacrifices there, did he? Instead, now, what did he do? He went to Jerusalem. He went to the tabernacle. He made offerings before the Lord there at the tabernacle. He did the right thing in terms of offering up those sacrifices. That was that was a proper worship of the Lord at that point. Solomon Wasted no time in demonstrating uh, his God-given discernment. This is such a such a neat example in Scripture. This is Solomon's, Solomon's wisdom, Solomon's discernment, put on display right here in this section. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this. <clears throat> then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And I think the only reason it's even mentioned that they were harlots is. Potentially to highlight maybe questionable character, which kind of unveils itself as we come to the section here. But it's mentioned here in verse 16. The two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord. This woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day. After I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house. Only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night. Because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me. While your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Now. I would argue uh, I I personally have I personally have never given birth to a child. <laughs> but I what I from what, everything I know, uh, someone who gives birth to a child and they have that child, the mother who's there with that child, she would know whether or not that child was her child. She would be able to tell. So when she says this in verse 21, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Believe me, she knew. She knew it, w- it probably wasn't hard for her to know. She knew. Then the other woman said, no. For the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. I'm not I'm not sure it doesn't say it doesn't say this in scripture, but I can almost see this. No. <laughs> right. You can almost see it. No. Living one is my son. And the dead one is your son. But the first woman said no for the dead one is your son. And the living one is my son. And you can just see they're facing off now. Right. This is face off time right here in front of Solomon. Thus, they spoke before the king. And by the way, the word. Spoke there in the Hebrew is the idea of almost that they were they were yelling at each other, right? <laughs> they were they were shouting. it's just they shouted before the king. They were they were they were going back and forth. Uh, then the king said, "I don't want to have anything to do with this mess because you guys are nuts." He didn't say that, uh, but he but he certainly could have, right? If he wanted to cop out, he certainly could have said that. The king said in verse twenty three. The one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. The king said, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Pretty absurd idea, isn't it? But he's making a point. He's making a point. Divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. And at the, see, to me, if it, if that verse stopped right there, you would say, well, that, you know, you would think that, right? The one whose child was still alive, she would absolutely be wanting to protect the child. Even if it meant that she had to give up the child, she would not want her child to be cut in two, right? She would not want him to be killed. And if it had stopped right there, then you would say to yourself, okay, well, now Solomon has some information he can decide. But it may, amazingly, amazingly, the other woman said... He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Can you imagine that? Think about that for a second. I want you to imagine for a second. Even if it wasn't your child, even if this had happened to you and your child had died and you tried to pull off this ridiculous charade by swapping the, the children and all of this, even still, when it gets to this moment, you would think that you would have a heart and admit what you had done. You would think that's what would have happened here. The other one said, no, it's actually her child. Please give it to her. She, but no, she says, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. That's, I mean, I, I'm, I was blown away. I mean, the first time, I remember the first time I read this passage, I was stunned when I read that. He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother. She is his mother. I mean, he didn't need any more information, did he? He didn't even need to hear the second woman as far as I'm concerned. After the first woman said what she said, I think he knew. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. In other words, it was evident to all that God had given him discernment and wisdom. So, first of all, I just said the two women, right? They laid out their predicament concerning the sons. Uh, Solomon's proposed solution was ludicrous. First of all, not for a second, not for a second was he going to actually cut the child in two, not for a second. But he proclaimed that so he could see their reaction. Right. He It was a ludicrous solution. He just wanted to see how they would react. And then this is very important. All of Israel had reverence. You notice what it said in the translation here. They feared the king, for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Well, I believe that what we need to understand from that particular Hebrew word there is the the idea of awe and reverence. They were in awe of King Solomon because of the fact that he he had made this decision. It was obvious that he had the wisdom of God with him to make that kind of a decision. Now, this was important. Because remember what has happened early on, before Solomon was even named king, uh, we had the whole thing with Adonijah, right? The whole, he tried to grab the throne, and then that was was taken away, and David said that it would be Solomon. And then we even have, after Solomon is established as king, he comes along and tries to uh, make a play for the throne still, so... The beginning of Solomon's reign, the very beginning of it, had been somewhat tumultuous and somewhat uh, unstable, I guess, for a lack of a better way to say it. This really solidified him as king when they saw his ability to render a verdict over this situation, which was a very tough situation. Really, this brought about this. It didn't say it specifically in this passage, but it did say all Israel. Remember the beginning of that verse said all of Israel. When all Israel heard of the judgment, that's talking about basically unification. Basically, the people of Israel came together at that point, And uh, at this point, they basically are, are settled in on the idea that Solomon is their king. They recognize his ability to lead. And part of it, if you think about it for a minute, uh, remember we talked about it. Uh, Adonijah was uh, older than Solomon. He was probably the oldest living child. And, uh, you know, when you look at their relative ages, you would say, well, maybe Adonijah was more suited. He was ready. He was older. And so the youth of Solomon may very well have been a question mark for some of the people. But when they saw this, they went, "Okay, Solomon's ready. He's definitely mature enough to be able to lead uh, the people of Israel. But what a situation. Can you imagine yourself in this same situation? Well, that's see, that's what I was kind of joking about at the very beginning of it is like, man, this is craziness. Are you kidding? I don't even want to decide. <laughs> I don't even want to decide this. You guys just leave. Go away and settle it among yourselves. But he didn't do that. And uh, thankfully, he did not do that. It would have been real easy to, to do the cop-out thing on that, but he didn't do it. He, uh, he came up with a, a quote-unquote solution that wasn't really a real solution anyway, just to see how the women would react. But, like I said, I, I'm still stunned. I'm still stunned by the other woman. Of course, she just lost her child. She just lost her child, and so she was probably in a in quite the state of mind at that point. But still, to, to think of the idea of you've lost your child, so you want the other child to die as well, I mean, that's some serious... Yeah, yeah, if I can't have a child, then you can't have it either. Right. That's that's some serious vindictiveness there. So I was surprised by that. But what a beautiful what a beautiful passage. And it describes the the wisdom of Solomon already at play. I mean, he this this is this is literally right after uh, his his dream and right after he asked for wisdom and right after God promised him wisdom. And uh, here's the whole thing that we can extract in, out of this and pull forward to today is that. You know, do I have do I have all wisdom? No, I do not. I do not. Um, But what does James chapter one tell us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God for it and he will give it to us without reproach. Right. That we 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 are going to be given the wisdom of God if we're asking for it, if we need it, if we want it. He's going to give it to us. And by the way, uh, that's not. um, When we talk about that wisdom in James chapter one, we're not talking about that. You'll be so incredibly smart that you go on. You can go on Jeopardy and win five times in a row. What we're talking about with that wisdom in James chapter one is the wisdom that you need to do what God is asking you to do. Right? So we're talking about God giving you the wisdom that you need uh, for the life and and the steps that God is going to have you to walk. And so we, we need to bring forth application. When we ask for wisdom, God's going to give it to us. He's promising that and promising us that. And beyond all of that, when we get into situations where we have to make uh, We have to make a call one way or the other on thing on things. We can ask God for answers. Don't shy away from asking God to help you make a decision. One way or the other is what you're going to do. I I meant to bring it up in the prayer meeting and I didn't do it. But uh, I would ask all of you to join me in prayer. My mom, who is going to turn 88 this year in uh, in less than two weeks, she turns 88. Uh, She's been having some weird health issues and she went to a cardiologist, and she is uh, being told by that cardiologist that uh, she has a really irregular heartbeat and she needs a pacemaker to stabilize her heartbeat. Now, my mom is almost 88 years old, so she's having to make a decision, and she's not just making a snap decision. She is not only herself praying about it and giving it to the Lord, she's asking for others to pray with her, and I'm asking you to join me in that prayer, that God would help her to make the decision If I were if I were in her position, I would probably do it because it's a quality of life issue. I mean, she has had some some health issues regarding this irregular heartbeat that have really taken away some of the quality of life. And I I would I would do it. And, and, And my what's the what's the quote unquote worst that could happen? You go into surgery and you die in the surgery. Well, what that is, is they. They put something in my veins. I go to take me a little nap. And the next thing I know, I wake up and I'm right there before Jesus. I mean, that's not a bad thing, folks. And so if I were in her position, I would probably do it. But she's praying for wisdom on making that decision. Right. And beyond all of that, one last thing I'll give you on this before we look at the scripture of the week. Often we find ourselves in situations where we're not sure we're going to know the right things to say. Think about Solomon in this situation. What's the right thing to say when these women, what's the right thing that what should I do here? Right. And we find ourselves in those situations, even when it's not a personal decision for us. We're just in it. We're in a situation where we we're not sure we know what the right things are to say. We actually have been promised from Scripture that we will be given the words we need to say that when the moment comes, that the Holy Spirit who lives within us is going to give us the words to say and by the way, I always remind people of this every time I bring this up. Sometimes the perfect words to say are none at all. Sometimes you don't say a thing, but the Holy Spirit will help you there, too. And that's the whole thing. What I want you to be aware of is that we face difficulties in life. If you have children, you're going to ha- face situations with your children. You're going to have to know how to handle those situations when you're dealing with aging parents, you're going to have to deal with a situation where you're going to have to know how to handle those situations. God is God is going to help us in every one of those situations, just like he helped Solomon here. God's going to help us to have the right understanding and wisdom and discernment to be able to make the decisions. And ultimately, I often tell people that when they're not sure when they're not sure which choice to make in a particular situation, I tell people to think about it. OK, OK. Which decision do I think is going to be the one that's going to glorify God? And often what you come to very quickly when you think about that is you realize one of the choices is something that without even realizing it, one of the choices is something that was actually kind of selfish in nature. And the other choice is the one that, you know, is going to glorify God. And so uh, sometimes it becomes really clear just thinking of it that way. Which one is going to glorify God? And uh, but the bottom line is, he's always going to help us through those situations. He doesn't want us to flounder. He's going to give us the information and the wisdom and the understanding that we need in order to be able to make a decision that's pleasing in his sight. So we can learn from that uh, from this section that that God gave Solomon wisdom. And you know what? He will give us wisdom as well. All right. Scripture of the week. Second, Timothy three, twelve. We're going to all read this together. Some people think it's a little bit weird that we do that. But I tell you what, when you do it, it helps you remember. And this is one of those verses that if you can remember this, even if you don't remember uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, maybe you'll remember 2 Timothy chapter 3. Or maybe you'll just remember 2 Timothy, and then you'll be able to find this verse. Maybe, you, maybe you'll be at a point where you have a brother or sister in Christ who's going through some persecution. And uh, you can take them to this verse. Let's read it together. Second, Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be not might be will be persecuted. Now, what leads up to this? Let's look at the verses that lead up to this. Verse 10 says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose. Faith, patience, love, perseverance. Oh, so far, we're great, right? Everybody's on board, right? So far, all the believers that you're preaching to are following. Teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patient, love, perseverance. Yes. Wait a minute. What's verse 11? <laughs> Persecutions and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What Persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And then in verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what does that mean now? Does that mean we're going to face what Paul did? Are you, in your lifetime? Are you ever going to be given thirty nine lashes? Maybe it might happen. But I don't know the answer to that. By the way, why was it thirty nine? Forty was the number they thought would kill you. Forty lashes and you would die. So they would give you thirty nine just enough where you wouldn't die, but you would go through the pain. Right. Lashes, so 39 the well, thirty nine, that's right. That was another factor in it, too. That's exactly right. Right. They, the idea was they're not supposed to do more than 40, so they would do 39, just in case they miscounted. That's a funny thing, but it's true. But the idea, though, he went through lashes. He went through shipwreck. he went through. I mean, well, look at all the things. He was taken before the court and accused of all sorts of things. Uh, Paul dealt with legitimate persecution. I don't think there's any question. But persecution takes many forms. Persecution takes many forms. I mean, more and more today... Uh, I don't know how much attention you pay to this, but more and more today, uh, Christians are being mocked for their faith. You are being mocked. And by the way, what they'll tell you is that you must be a simpleton. You must need a crutch, right? That's what your faith is all about. You need a crutch of some kind because you can't make it on your own. So your faith is nothing more than just a crutch or you must not be very smart because if you were smart, then you'd be able to figure it out. And I'm not bragging when I say this, but I'm just telling you, I graduated summa cum laude from Rice University. So I'm not stupid. Right. But my faith is strong in the Lord Jesus Christ, because I know it's true. I know he's real. I know it's true. I know what we're talking about is very, very much the word of God revealed to us in the scriptures. So my faith is strong. It's not your faith is not a matter of being a simpleton or needing a crutch. Your faith is because it's been revealed to you and you know it's true, right? You know it's true, but you will be mocked. And look what it says, though. I want you to I want you to first of all, indeed means very much. So this is very much true. But look at the first part of that. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So if I'm a believer, if I'm if I'm what I'm going to call a nod to God believer, now, have you ever heard that term before? Nod to God. What it means is I'm going to show up on Sunday morning and I'm going to dress nice and I'm going to sit in my chair, or my pew or whatever it is. And I'm going to listen to the sermon and maybe pick up a couple things that are kind of interesting. The preacher told a really good joke. I like that. Uh, and and all sorts of. and then I, li- I get up out of my chair and out of my pew and I get in my car and 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 I don't do I, I don't do anything that has anything to do with the Christian life. I'm just basically doing my little nod to God. I come on Sunday morning because I want to make sure I do my little nod to God. Because when it comes time, you know, where I, I'm, I'm at the pearly gates, I want to make sure God knows I was there at church on Sunday morning. We all know that's a bunch of Hollywood I anyway. But, but, the, but the whole thing about it is, this says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. That's talking about those who are walking the walk. If you are walking the walk, if you are truly living out your faith, you will be persecuted. The, the intensity of that persecution may vary. You probably won't be persecuted the same way uh, our brothers and sisters in North Korea are persecuted. You probably, we were just praying about it in a prayer meeting. We, we have some brothers and sisters in Cameroon that literally had to abandon their homes and their church and go into the wilderness because they were, their lives were being threatened. Now, are you ever going to face that? Maybe. As Ed said, maybe, but we're not facing it right now. Persecution is real. You will face it. If you desire to to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. So this is a a statement that's absolutely true from the scriptures. It's something that we need to understand. And as I mentioned when I was doing the announcements, it's not a real popular message from the scriptures. It's It's not a refrigerator verse. Because people don't want to think about persecution. But we will face persecution if we're walking the walk. If we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. Now, Peter in his writings, and we we studied both first and second Peter, Peter in his writings said, If you suffer for Christ, you are blessed. I want you to think about that for a second. You are blessed. If you're suffering for Christ, now, if you're suffering for your sins. That you brought on yourself, right? He'd said, no, 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 don't suffer for unrighteousness. Peter actually went out and said that don't suffer for unrighteousness. But if you suffer for Christ, you are blessed. In other words, as believers, we can be blessed in this life. See, believers don't think of blessing that way. Believers think a blessing is a brand-new Cadillac, right? That's, the, that's a blessing. I guess we're, probably Cadillac is old news. A brand-new Mercedes or what is it? I don't know. Whatever, the, you know. whatever the latest and greatest is, right? You know, Lamborghini or something. But, you know, I, 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 you often have this idea of, of temporal goodies as the blessings. But when Peter was talking about being blessed as we suffer for Christ – He was talking about spiritual blessings, folks. Remember, he said that we he actually said that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. That's actually an amazing thing. And that's the idea of the koinonia fellowship. Our fellowship with Christ includes suffering with him. But I want you to step back for a second and think about it. We're going to have communion today. Step back for a second and think about it. If you really love the Lord and you really understand what he's what he did for you and what he did for me, if you really get his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension and session, he's interceding for us right now. If you really understand who Jesus Christ is. Are you willing to suffer for him? I hope so. That's That's a small thing to ask. Right. He gave his life for us. We should be willing to give our lives for him. Amen. Yeah. Yes, sir. I believe that's right. I, what Jesse said was that we're seeing we're really seeing the beginning of an in, of the increase, the rise of persecution on Christians in the United States of America. We, it's just a very it's just the very beginnings. But we're seeing it. And that's why I believe I, I can't speak for him exactly. but That's why I believe Ed said what he did, because we're seeing the beginnings of the persecutions in this country in our lifetime. Could it be that we actually get thirty nine lashes? Maybe could happen. But I'm just telling you right now, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, if you're if you're going through those things for him, then you're blessed. If it's for Christ, if you're suffering for Christ, then you're blessed. All right. Speaking of jokes, I got to tell one real quick. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> I know because 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 they don't hear me tell jokes that often. Right. But uh, so uh and I won't I probably won't tell it right but but I heard this my wife uh played this for me it was it was on uh Family Talk I think it was a program and this preacher was talking about the difference between men and women. And some of you've already heard this, but the difference between men and women. And so this couple they had they had uh, they had their first child and it was a daughter. And at one point uh the the preacher didn't say how old the daughter was but at one point uh, the daughter is in in her crib, and the the, the father walks in and he 's standing there looking at looking at his daughter in the crib and His wife happens up happens to come up to the doorway and sees him standing there and she 's thinking to herself well he 's just got to be overcome with emotions he 's got to be just in awe he he 's just he 's just sitting there in awe and just blown away by the fact that here is his daughter there's this there 's this human life in this crib and And it's just amazing. And he's probably just just overflowing with emotions, standing there looking at his daughter. And so she walks up after a little while, she walks up and she puts her hand on his shoulder and says, honey, what are you thinking about? He says, I cannot believe someone could make a crib like that for forty (laughs) two dollars. That's the difference between men and women right there. (laughs) All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings. We thank you for all that you've taught us today and, and otherwise in our lives. The, the wonderful truth of your word that nourishes our souls and helps us to grow up in the faith and helps us to see the world in a different way because we, our, our view of the world is very much a view that has you in it. And we know that you're sovereign over it. And, Father, we are thankful that we can see things from your viewpoint more and more as we learn more about who you are and more about what your word is teaching us. We thank you for the fact that we have the Holy Spirit within us who guides and directs, protects us. We ask that you would help us as your children to walk in a worthy manner, that we would, in fact, decide to live our lives in a way that's pleasing in your sight that we would desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. We might face suffering. We might face persecution. But, Father, we know that whatever the situations might be that we encounter, you're right there with us. You're giving us the wisdom to see things clearly. You're giving us the, the understanding we need in order to make decisions. Father, we are thankful that every step of the way, one step at a time, you're giving us all that we need. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to remain focused on you And on the life that you have for us to live, that we might bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be pleasing in your sight. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.